The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Dose of Leadership Podcast, Episode 220. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, hey, welcome to the show. So happy you're tuning into Dose of Leadership. It's that time again where we become intentional about learning how to become better leaders. What does that even mean? Why do I even do this show? It's because leadership is central to everything that we do. Every aspect of our life is touched by leadership. Everything, and I mean literally everything, rises and falls with it. We don't really know what leadership means. Stereotypically, we think it means position, title, larger-than-life, charismatic figure. But that's not what this is about. That's not what this show is about. It's for everybody. That's why I bring... Famous people on the show, not so famous people on the show. It doesn't matter as long as we talk about leadership and you get some value out of the show on how to intentionally grow yourself. And by growing yourself, you enable others to grow too. That is the goal. That's why we study leadership because it's central to everything that we do. And if you want to leave a legacy, and I hope all of you that are listening to the show, that is part of your mission statement and part of your intentionality is to what kind of legacy you're going to leave behind. There's nothing arrogant about thinking that way. That's the problem. We don't intentionally think about what kind of legacy we want to leave behind. We need to broaden those shoulders Shoulders people are going to stand on, those kids, those grandkids, those great-grandkids. You need to be thinking about that because the world needs it. It demands it. And all of us are going to be called to leadership. Somebody right now, it doesn't matter who you are, there's somebody right now, at least one person, looking to you for influence and guidance. You will influence people without even trying. So think about what can happen if you become intentional about positively influencing people. And that's what leadership is, increasing your influence, becoming influential. And how do you do that? You do that by adding value, selflessly adding value to people's lives, not expecting anything in return. And the universe, I don't know why it works this way or how it works this way, but when you do, your needs will be met exponentially because you're adding value to somebody else's life. That's something all of us can do. You don't have to you know, demand or rely on some genetic leadership gene that doesn't exist. We can all learn how to become better leaders. Not all of us are going to be Fortune 500 CEOs, but that's not the goal. It's not about being successful, and I'm using air quotes there. It's about becoming significant. We're all called to lead a life of significance. And that's why I do this show, and hopefully this show can help. One of the many resources out there that can help you along your journey, and hopefully you're getting some value in this show that will help you in your leadership journey. And if you are finding some value, it would mean the world to me if you could leave a rating and review on either iTunes or Stitcher. 
download this app to your mobile device, take it on the road with you, listen to it wherever you go, and leave a rating and review. Let me know what you think about this show. It's just a free show, and it's just all I ask is if you could do that. It helps so much for the visibility of the show with all those hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there to keep us front and center, to keep new people finding the show, to keep building this community. If you could just leave a rating and review, take the time. I appreciate that. Bruce Van Horn, thank you for the last rating and review that you did on iTunes. It means the world to me. I look forward to talking to you and capturing your story here in a few days. And thanks to the listeners out there reaching out. Chris from the Phoenix Police Department, great conversation we had the other day. It meant a lot to hear from you. I loved your passion, your enthusiasm, and your calling. I look forward to see what you create when you step out in faith and encourage to create warrior blue leadership. I look forward to seeing where that comes over the next few years. And I want to hear from you too. Let me know where you're at in your leadership journey, Richard at doseofleadership.com or go to my website at doseofleadership.com and go to the contact tab and reach out to me. I promise you, I will get back to you. It may not be immediately, but I will get back to you. I promise. I love hearing from my listeners, all my supporters, all my fans. I couldn't do this show without you. And hearing from you fills that emotional fuel tank that keeps this show going and help keep keep making it better. So again, thank you for your support. So great conversation today. Great guest, William Traceder. And you've probably never heard of him, but he was a young gentleman I met at the uh, uh, leadership seminar that I attended in San Francisco about five weeks ago. And he was on a panel with Lydia Davey. Maybe you've heard that episode where I talked to Lydia. Great conversation. And when I met William, I knew it was going to be a great conversation too. I knew I had to talk to him because he certainly has an authentic and genuine presence about him, an authentic and genuine and caring soul about him, a great presence. And uh, I, I wasn't disappointed when I talked to him. And I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. It is longer than most, but hey, we can do whatever we want. It's my show. I can make it as long as I want. And you don't have to listen to it all at once. You can take your time with it. But William has some great advice, some great nuggets on leadership, on life, on faith. As he described himself, he was a stereotypical problem child. And he joined the Marine Corps. And uh, he's now a partner of BMNT Partners, which is a consultancy firm that brings together government and Silicon Valley groups to solve complex critical problems. And like I said, he served in the Marine Corps from 2001 to 2011, first as an infantry and then in civil affairs. And he deployed to Iraq, Afghanistan. When he got out, he graduated from Stanford University, tried a few startups, and he's lucky enough to settle in San Francisco. And again, he doesn't look like the typical Marine. He's got long blonde hair. He's tall, but he's just, I don't know, he's just so intelligent, so fun, so caring, so genuine, so authentic. And you'll get this sense from listening to this conversation. Again, I think you'll enjoy it. So without further ado, here's William Traceder on Dose of Leadership. Well, William, so glad to have you on the show. Welcome to Dose of Leadership. Thank you so much for having me, Richard. It's, it's great to be on sort of again. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just, in, you know, I, I don't know. I really, what a lot of people can't see or hear anyway is like we've been talking a lot behind the scenes and then sometimes I wish some of the conversations we've had authentically like we've had uh, I wish I had the recorder on you're just such a fun guy to talk to an interesting guy to talk to so again I'm excited to see where this conversation goes you know I 
just so their listeners know, we met, I don't know, a month ago in San Francisco at a, um, I guess it was a leadership seminar that the Marines were putting on. They had a lot of um, civilian leaders and brought myself, someone who'd been in the Marine Corps before, and then yourself, who I was on a panel, entrepreneurship panel, and I saw you and um, a couple of the entrepreneurs on there. I said, man, I've got to talk to this guy. So uh, it's just been a pleasure to to know you just a short time. It's just, I feel like I've known you a long time, if that makes any sense. So again, welcome, welcome to the show. Thank you. And, and it does make, it does make sense. I think, uh, you know, you find over time, it's easier and easier to relate to people who have lived a certain, a certain kind of a life where they've been sort of uncomfortable a lot of the time in the sense of being pushed outside of their comfort zone. And I think like recognizes like at a certain point. Yeah, you know, and, and you think, naturally gravitate towards those kinds of people. Yeah, you know, and this show and people who've listened to the show, we talk, I talk about that a lot. And, you know, it's this, my life has totally been um, transformed once I got comfortable with not worrying about being wrong. And I think a large part of my life, I was that way. Even when I became more entrepreneurial, I was, once I got past that and just, I don't know, it was, it was kind of a, um, a, a re- refreshing or, um, what can I say? It relieved, it took a huge burden off of me, if I guess I was trying to say. And um, I say that a lot. If you get in that comfort or stay in that comfort zone, that's not where you want to be. The growth zone doesn't feel good, but once you do it after a while, it almost becomes addicting. Do you, do you share that kind of sentiment? Yes. Yes, I absolutely do. I think um, if, uh, if anything, I know I'm, I at least know I'm on the right track when I look at my friends who are in, you know, sort of more static jobs and I'm jealous because it means that I'm, I'm in a zone constantly where I'm, I'm pushing up against poorly formed limits and I'm constantly growing and, and, um, challenging myself and and the people around me in different ways. So when I, when I can look at a, at a very static, boring job, which I would normally hate, you know, and I can see it and say, wow, that actually looks, I would love to do that for like a month. That's a that's a phenomenal litmus test for me if if I'm to know if I'm in the zone. So I mean, if if I you know a month and a day and I would hate it, but if I look at that thing, I'm just like, wow, I would just kill for a job like that right now. That would be phenomenal. That's um that's kind of the zone I like I like to be in. And you're right, it's really not comfortable. And I think a few years ago, I used to believe that what needed to happen was to ping back and forth between the two sort of modes, so to speak. Your more uncomfortable mode. And you're more comfortable mode professionally. Right. Um, but now I think it really is more about just the mindset and skill set that allows you to sustain yourself in the uncomfortable zone yeah, and getting to right. Yeah, for me and, and a lot of it has come from the show and people I brought on the show was kind of revealing. And I think I maybe I've told you the story, but I think it was early on when I got Steve Forbes to come on the show. And we didn't get this recorded. It was one of those kind of moments after we were talking. Again, I wish I would have the recording still going. But he, um, I asked him how he's dealt with fear and uncertainty his whole life. And he kind of laughed. And he said, you know, I woke up this morning petrified that, you know, I'm making the wrong decision. That I feel like I don't belong in this space. And that was kind of wow. refreshing for me, you know, to know that here's a guy like Steve Forbes. Um, he struggles with resistance i guess is the better way to put it resistance and fear uncertainty and um i guess that's from an entrepreneurial standpoint i think that that's just something you got to get used to right i mean that's the price of admission i guess isn't yeah. it yeah yeah yes i guess exactly i'll tell you i mean i know that we haven't we haven't kind of canvassed any of my 
background, but you know, as, as by way of a quick intro to this story, I was in Nigeria for about four months last year doing project work for GE, building an entrepreneurial training program there. And um, just this morning, I was having an email exchange. So it's afternoon in Nigeria, but um, had a really talented one of the 28 participants, this guy. And I was asking him, checking up on his startup idea. He had actually had, he had one, one idea that he was really running with and then a backup idea. Always dangerous, you know, but we could talk about that later. But he had, he had scuttled both ideas. And you could just hear the pain in this guy's, mm. you know, in, in his writing style. It was just he was despondent and he just really needed a, a pick me up. I, I scheduled a, a Skype call for him in a few days. But um, that was exactly what I was telling him. I was just saying, like, look, man, you, <laughs> you're going to get kicked in the teeth so many times. There's just absolutely no way around it. Do you think, you know, if you hadn't have been in the Marine Corps, you wouldn't be an entrepreneur or do you think you were always destined to be entrepreneurial? Oh, I don't think that, I don't believe in destiny. I, I don't, I don't, that doesn't make any sense to me that it, it rob it robs you of, um, agency. Oh yeah. There's a great, there's a great word that I love, uh, vitiate, which means to, rem it means to remove the vitality from something the mm -hmm. like essence of something. Right. Um, and yeah, V I T I A T E. And I, I, I think we do that a lot. Um, yeah, it kind of dumbs it down, though, right? It takes away the. Um, is that what you're trying to say? I don't know if dumbs down the I, right word, but, uh. yeah, well, it's like it's like this. Um, I um, I had a I have a good friend who's a professor at the Stanford Business School, and he talks about how his friends who are who have had what they like to call significant liquidity events, right? Like acquisitions or IPOs. Like these guys, they made a bunch of money, basically. Um, how they, he said you can watch them change their story in their head afterwards about how they knew that they were always going to be successful. And, <laughs> oh, and this idea was so great. And, you know, it just, it's just phenomenal, like how the, the market just aligned and all this blah, 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 blah. And he just said, you know, I walked with you through this process. I watched you, you know, tear your hair out every day. I watched you miss sleep and I watched all the sacrifices you were making and you had no idea if it was worth it. And, um, I think it's that, uh, whatever we may feel destined to do is just retrospective rationalizing, mm, I think uh, right. And, yeah. and, um, when you're, you know, when you're trying to climb the mountain, th there is no path. And when, but when you've peaked it and you look back down, you can yeah, see, it's easy to see, the, right. Yeah. Because when you're in the middle of it, you'd be like, where in the hell is this thing going? You have no yeah. idea. Right. False, false peaks, switchbacks, mm -hmm. you know, just you lose it. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's, it's a constant, it's a constant, constant struggle. And, um, the only real difference, um, that I've seen some, some of my, uh, friends who have had, uh, their companies acquired really the only thing that they, that they say is, is that it's, if you, they basically just say, if you keep trying and you keep learning, eventually you will be successful in this. And, and, in this narrow financial definition of the concept of success. They really believe that all, all of them do. I think they just said it's about that, that quantity, which means if you have 149 great ideas and you stop, you know, and then you go get a regular job and feel like you're giving in, it might've been the 150th idea that really would have taken you where you needed to go. You know, I like that. I like that mentality. I mean, and I, you know, I, I hear that a lot. If that, if there has been one prevailing theme 
um, from all the interviews that I've done, um, all the people, I'd probably say 95 to 98% of the time, if I asked people, you know, what was your definition of success or what was the attribute that led to your success? It's always tenacity, always. Mm -hmm. And it has little to do with, I mean, skills in there somewhat, but we put such an inordinate amount of emphasis on talent, but talent really doesn't equal results. You know what I mean? I mean, the talent's a given. You got to be good at something, but it's, it's, it's the, um, it's really the tenacity piece, I think. Oh, yeah. The talent is crazy. I mean, you know, if you read Peter Thiel's new book, Zero to One, which I, I highly recommend, um, he uh, he dis- he defines these really talented people that just don't have much conviction as optionality chasers, right. which I really like. Um, and I think that that's that's a that's that's a huge chunk of, of this generation. Um Really talented people who are used to the sameness of their work, right? And the sort of idea that you you rotate through things, you you achieve a few skills, you do a year here, two years here, whatever. Um, and the whole idea is just keep your options open um, versus the idea that you are constructing the future. You're building the future right now. And that requires so much determination. And, and you, like, you need to have not hundreds, but thousands of doors slammed shut in your face. And um, it's just not comfortable or, um, I don't know, it's not nice to hear that when you're in the middle of the slog, as I am. And it sounds like maybe you might be considering jumping back in again, too. Or Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I go back and forth. Of course, I'm, I'm kind of a different place than you are. But I think that, you know, I, I have what I call the golden handcuff, right? And it's it's no secret. You know, I've got the great, uh, great flying job, great paying gig not a lot of stress involved with it affords a lot of free time to be entrepreneurial and have a side hustle, but it's at a point now to where it's kind of, all right, I can't, if I really want to turn the side hustle from a quasi hobby into something significant, something's got to give. Right. And so that's really the struggle for me. And it's like, man, and how do you do that when, especially when the cash flow isn't there, like where you want it to be. And, and then can the cash flow come when you're doing both and i don't know i think a lot of times yeah. what's that yeah no I, I i don't think i i have the exact same problem that i have so i have two <laughs> you can't really have two foci right but i i mean right. so i don't you can only have one focus but i you know i have work that's this um uh bmnt partners work which is this amazing mission of getting Silicon Valley and the Pentagon to play nice together to solve some of the biggest problems that are going to be, um, I don't want to say make or break, you know, an American led uh, 21st century, but there's a lot of really serious problems that look a lot more like technology than politics mm-hmm. right now. Right. Um, and that, so that's a huge mission, but it's interesting, you know, I keep on finding myself pulled back to other issues surrounding um, much more about, people yeah and um and so that's that's why i i picked up and uh and went to nigeria for for four months because i have a some wonderful and understanding co-workers but also because that that's just where my heart is and i think that uh if you if you keep pushing at it eventually you figure out something that will that will pay the bills there and really it's like you know it's, it's those times when you i don't know you 
you forget to, you know, you forget to eat, which is a huge thing for me. Like I love to eat, you know, if you, if you, I love my sleep too, but the things that get me to stay up, you know, th those are the things that I think are really, it's cliche, but it doesn't mean it's not true. But those are the things that at the end of the day, you can really focus on if they happen to align with things that you're good at, or there are elements within that, that you can do very well, even up to a unique degree where really no one can do what you can do. Well, and I think that's really, um, from an entrepreneur standpoint, challenging for me is like, uh, it's almost like for the longest time I've been chasing influencers and I'm kind of burned out at that point because at some point, if you're going to succeed, you've got to stand up and have your own voice heard. Not that I've been a copy, I, you know, a, a copycat, but it's easy to fall into the trap of like, well, this person's successful. I need to follow and do what they do. I'm really burned out on doing that, to be quite honest. It just, it's so old. And it seems like the whole kind of entrepreneur space, the internet marketing space, it's so incestuous to me and it's great. And I don't want this to sound like I'm, um, you know, sour grapes, but if you're in this space and it's like, everybody has a great idea and they're successful, but then they find what makes them money is they, talk to other people like you and I and buy my course. I'll show you how I made money online. It's just like this incestuous cycle. And I, that's really kind of burdening me out now too. Oh yeah. That's the worst. I mean, Tim Ferriss is in the middle of that right now. It's sad. In the last few podcasts, you know, I, I, I really like that guy, but he's, 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 you know, you can see it. You can watch it happen in slow motion, which is kind of sad. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's super hard, right? Like again, I don't, and I'm, I'm definitely, you know, no one, no one really, no one's paying me to, to keep doing this, but I think zero to one does a really good job of outlining some of these problems. And he, he talks about rents from like, you know, from an economic perspective, this like this excess profits that are, that are a result of some kind of, um, you know, monopolistic advantage. Like one of his points is just, you know, once you get to a certain stage, then your, your sort of profit based inertia in life is so high or so great that it's really hard for you to want to look down the barrel of your next entrepreneurial endeavor, you know, and say, all right, it, it's worth it to do this a couple more times, you know, because it, it is just really, really, really hard to build something lasting, impactful, and, great. Yeah. Of significance, right? Yeah, and, uh, exactly. Something, something that makes a, something that makes a, a dent in, in the world. And, um, I, it, but it, it's like, uh, I mean, the people that really get that are, I think they're one thing that maybe sets them apart that I don't know if you've touched on this before, but they, they also have really, really good friends. Yeah. And I think a support community that look, doesn't look like, you know, I don't want to throw Silicon Valley into the bus, but it's not like meetups and stuff like that, right? It's, it's a very small group of people that you see over and over and over again. And that support you and you support them. Yeah. And that's something, I don't know, do you have that? I, well, yeah, I, you know, but even that, it's, even, it's, it's interesting too that you brought that up because I agree with you. I think you, um, an entrepreneurial journey can be extremely lonely. I mean, I'm sure, I mean, I've, no, I, I've talked to a lot of people like that. Yeah, there, there's, there, there's a handful of friends and I continue to meet more and more, right? And people that, you know, no like and trust and like-minded folks to get around and it's certainly a support system. Yeah. That was one thing probably going into it, you know, five years ago, I was trying to do everything by myself and over time. Um, yeah, I, 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 I mean, just even today, I can't even tell you, I probably, more I think about it, probably three times a week, we'll reach out people that have been in like mastermind groups together here or there. 
and mm -hmm. we'll just talk and say, where are you at? You know, how can I help you? That's huge. Yeah. Because that's, I, you, I, yeah. I, I couldn't do it without it. I think that, so that's, that's one thing. And I, I think I also mean, um, outside of your commercial endeavors too. Like we have my, my wife and I have, a, a couple good sets of friends through church. Um, and, um, uh, it doesn't, you know, you don't have to be uh, religious to enjoy the kind of friendship. My my sister and her and her husband are, um, they're not religious, but when we're when we're together, we often will oscillate between more fun and you know light, engaging conversation, but occasionally we'll we'll dive down into things that I think are whether or not they have anything to do with work. They're just they're below this sort of I don't know. Uh, this weird Facebook-ish type relationship right. with, that you tend to have with other people where everything is right at the surface. Um, and it would delve into like things that people are having problems with and it could be uh, health or finances or whatever. And that those, even if it's other people talking about what they're, what, what problems they're having, or I'm talking about what problems I'm having, I always walk away from those conversations feeling restored in some way even if there was no conclusion yeah you know just getting it out of your own head and because because it might be that you you're stuck at something with at, with your startup or with your idea your company that is actually not based on the, the company itself or the business model or the you know channels to the customers or whatever it turns out the actual problem is something that is related in an in an extra professional area of your life that's that's serving as a, like a friction point for you. Yeah, I think that you know I agree with you. But I mean, it's even it seems so hard to find those authentic relationships. It's, it's, which is amazing to me. What how many billion people on the planet? Six billion, eight billion people on the planet? Whatever it is, seven point two, seven point three. Yeah. I think so. It's amazing that you cannot find. You know, I look back at my parents, and they had um, there were eight, there were um, six couples that they played bridge. They started playing bridge in 1960 and all but one or two are dead now. And, um, they just had this amazing connection, all different backgrounds, various religious beliefs, political beliefs, but they always got together once a month and they lived life, which is amazing to the point to where, you know, where I got hired by an American, we're going to move to Dallas. And we said, dad, you know, mom's gone. Nothing. Once you move down to Dallas with us and live with us, we'll, I'll build a house big enough. And, the draw of his friends having that circle of friends were so strong. You know, he, he would rather stay there with the friends instead of be around his grandkids. And that's nothing. It's my dad was the, you know, ideal grandfather, great father, but that's strong. And I, I don't have those friends. Like I don't have friends like that. And that's kind of sad to me. I don't know. It's, it seems like that our generation is, it's so hard to get to. Maybe it's just, me. it's, a, it's a mobility thing, man. I mean, really we're, we are, um, World War II generation, it started there, really. That was really where mobility started at any sort of, you know, large scale because the, the macro economic conditions and labor conditions allowed for the uprooting of entire chunks of the population. But I think, you know, in an agricultural society and, and, and to some degree in the early industrial societies, we were, we were trees, right? right? Right. Now we're not trees. Now we're lily pads. Yeah. 
you know, where we might have some flimsy connection to something down in the silt, you know, 15 feet below the, the, the surface of the water. But at the end of the day, we're just casting around on the surface and we're just, we're, we're moving around. We're constantly doing things. And, you know, I remember when I got back, so uh, my, my military background, not nothing crazy or sexy, but, but four years active duty. And then I did two reserve tours and uh, at the end of my second reserve tour, this is like, I dropped out of Stanford to go deploy to Afghanistan. And like, obviously my family wasn't too happy about that. Right. I remember a couple days after I got back, I had an out processed, you know, from the reserves and then came back to Stanford. I was sitting in the parking lot of this, of my dorm. I was like you know, 28 years old living in a dorm. Very successful guy, obviously. <laughs> um, but uh, my sister had come to visit and she's just amazing person, and she uh, she's really been there for me. She and and uh, her husband, uh, who who's actually the best man at my wedding, they're phenomenal people. But she was sitting there, kind of looking at me, and just told me, "Look, hey, I I gotta tell you, like, I'll be your sister for the rest of your life, but if you do this ever again, I'm gonna be your friend. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm just not gonna be able to have that kind of deep friendship with you that you want and that I want if you continue to just randomly yank yourself up and then go do something insane like go to Afghanistan. I mean, when you don't have to go, right? Right. And um, I think that combination of sort of um, thrill-seeking and really wanting to be a part of the mission, that was poisoning my the relationships with my close friends and family. Interesting. And she was the only one that could say that to me. And then that day, I decided that I wouldn't do it again. It just wasn't worth it. And I don't think that there are a lot of people who are willing to accept the professional consequences of saying it's not worth it to lose the potential for building or maintaining these really deep uh, social ties with with other people. But I see that's what I think so many – this is what I can't understand because I think so many people are so hungry – for that type of authenticity, that type of vulnerability. And I argue that authenticity is really the the primary currency that you need for leadership and for life. And when I talk about leadership, I'm talking about every aspect of life, you know, but that authenticity is the currency that is really all that you need to take you mm-hmm. so many places, but we never, we never get there. And, um, that's really, you don't think we get there? Well, no, I, we do. I think it, but it takes a lot of work, I guess is really what I'm trying to say. You know, because we talk, I talk about that a lot. And I think that's something that I missed, God, for the better part of my life is about that, you know, but man, the the moment, like you said, kind of where I stopped worrying about being wrong and a moment I saw the power of authenticity and vulnerability, uh, I ne- I've never gone back. And, um, but it's, it's still a daily, it's a daily choice that I have to, I don't know if I have to remind myself it's becoming, it's weird to say that I got to remind myself to be authentic, right? Because of it, when I say that, not that I'm deceptive by any measure, but I certainly wear masks and it's easy to put on a mask when I get nervous or scared, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah, I mean, that, believe me, no one will identify with that more than me. I mean, you, you're, I mean, your listeners have never seen me, but I mean, to say that you're a former Marine and then to have like a foot and a half of hair, <laughs> right? Yeah. Definitely not. Um, that doesn't endear you to anybody who would, you know, claim to be uh, associated with the same group as you, the same tribe, if you want to call the Marine Corps that. Um, so I, I, I'm constantly faced with this issue of like, how do I? Anytime I do anything with any veterans, you know, 
how do I prove that I'm one of them and vice versa? Like if I'm doing things with um, civilians and if they find out about you know, my military background, how do I let them continue to engage with me as a person and not treat me like a circus midget or something, you know, because <laughs> that's, I mean, I'm really, I, I can tell you from just being, being at Stanford through no fault of their own people, once they found out I was a vet, they just, they, they ceased to be able to relate to me in, in a personal way. Yeah, Everything became, and I think it's really one of, it's an, it's a problem of novelty. They just don't know enough people that, um, that correspond to this particular demographic, the veteran demographic. This is a, you know, an increasingly problematic part of um, the most selective institutions in the United States. Mm-hmm. But that, that um, there are people involved with what I think we can call the more foundational elements of society, like the things that involve the maintenance of society, public safety, you know, national security, and, and such and and those the, the subcultures within those groups tend to be more conservative and they also tend to be much stronger mm-hmm. than this sort of listless confused consumer culture that defines 80 or 90 percent of the country especially white suburban america right and i think that is what creates a big chunk of that yearning for authenticity you don't see a lot of there's no strong pull for authenticity in the mexican subculture you know, or la- or Latin subculture in general, or black subculture. You just don't see it as much. There's just, you know, it's just very different. And so these people sort of in the stuck in this worthless, homogenized culture, and they really want to to they want to engage with people who are confident and know who they are and have these deep relationships and can help catalyze these deep relationships with other people, because somewhere in the back of their minds, they know that they're the right. They're the right types of relationships. And you could have three of those and they would be worth 10,000 of any relationship of convenience. For sure. Yeah, you know, I think that's what, uh, yeah, that is definitely probably my biggest yearning, I think, for myself, my family, and those closest to me. But it seems so, it seems like such a chasm to get there sometimes. I don't know. And maybe that's just me. Maybe that's just part of, of you know, because there is, you know, and I've seen, um, I don't know, there's a lot of people, there's, there is a lot, I'm very trusting and very open to people. And I think um, and maybe that's just my, my upbringing. But I know, you know, other, my wife is less trusting and, and maybe she's the smarter one than me, right? But, there's, <laughs> but you know, yeah. I haven't been burned by that many people, you know, you know but I, I'm, Tend, would tend to like to believe that most people are that way, that, you know, if you come and ask me for help, you're not trying to gain something from me. You really need my help. Um, maybe that's a naive way to look at it, but um, I, I think most people are that way. I don't know. what. How do you... I, I, I think it really, it really depends, man. I, I've, had, I've had a lot of relationships where... Or, or I, it's, I don't even... It, maybe it's better to look at it not so much as... Um, um, defined or, or even the relationships that you have tend to, from my perspective, to be more clustered around environments that you're in rather than um, like the, like the individual person with whom you have a relationship. And I'm not saying this very well, but what I mean is that where there's an extreme asymmetry, like when I was, I was in Nigeria or when we were deployed, 
you know, or when, if you're rich and you're talking to somebody who's poor or vice versa. Um, I've certainly been in the vice versa many times. Um, in those situations, I think it's much harder to have that just general, um, hey, you know, just have to talk, whatever, blah, blah, blah. I, I don't think that happens very much. And it certainly doesn't happen very authentic or very organically. It doesn't happen naturally. Right. I think it, there's just, there's, there are too few people that exhibit true empathy, right? Yeah. And is that something that can be learned, though? I mean, because I think that, again, the authenticity, and if you have a strong emotional quotient, I think you can almost write your ticket. And I don't mean that in taking advantage way, but just having that ability to empathize and have that high emotional intelligence. I mean, that, again, that's so lacking in so many areas. Um, it's, yeah, it's, par well, it's partially being stuck in this sort of perma adolescence, you yeah. know? Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's a pretty serious problem. People, uh, that uh, that is where I think I fall most victim to that issue. Is um, I have to always mitigate my exposure to people who are very teenagerish or teenagery. I don't know what the you know the best way to describe that, but it's not a. It's really not a. Maybe adolescence is a better way of saying it. It's not a. It's not a you know, 13 to 17 or 13 to 19 anymore. Now it's kind of like a 10 or 11 to whenever, whenever the hell you decide to grow up. Right. And I'm like there are those yeah. people, like I have a lot of buddies from the Marines that are like that. And they're a lot of fun to hang out with for a very short period of time. But I actually notice the difference in myself after having spent some time with them. You know, it may be something like I'm a little bit more short with my wife. I might get home and say something casually that's less considerate or maybe more dismissive of her than I would say otherwise. It's just a very subtle thing, but it's all baked into the way that those people converse and relate with each other. Well, it's probably, yeah, it just seems like we're, we're, as a general whole, we're so much more narcissistic than I think we yeah. have to admit. Yeah, exactly. And then there's a, I don't know, there's a great book, The Culture of Narcissism, yeah. written in the early 70s, you know, yeah. And, and yeah, Christopher Lash does a great job of describing things that have only become way worse in the last 40 plus years. Um, so it, I think that's a, that's a big issue. But at, at the same time, you know, because of things, that's one of the reasons why I love some of the methodologies that come out of Silicon Valley, right? I mean, it, in a lot of ways, that's what design thinking and lean startup yeah. methodology are. You're right. They're antidotes to narcissism. They're forcing you to become more, to, to, to demonstrate empathy, to learn empathy, to learn how to test hypotheses about what you think about something in terms of its value to others, its ability to solve problems for other people. And so I love that because how many times have you heard a story, and again, that this is the, right, the plural of anecdote is not data, but there are lots of stories about people who started one company and they built some sort of small feature in order to address a problem. And then that solution, that feature became the, the thing that scaled, right? And became right. the actual big company. Right. So they had some brilliant idea that was like very narcissistic, not, not necessarily narcissistic, but very self-involved. And then they tried to solve a problem for some other people, maybe even internal to their own company. And then that ends up being the thing that everybody wants. Right. Right. I think that kind of, yeah, it, it shows that. So, who, I mean, you know, Silicon Valley can't do everything, but um, maybe that's part of. Well, but I mean, um, even what you're talking about there, I mean, I love that you said that, but it, it's also true what I say um, when I do leadership coaching and talk. And it, if I could, some, you know, break it down into just one bullet point, I mean, the key to all this or the secret sauce 
is if you want to be a transformative leader, um, it's simply just adding value to somebody else's life. And how do you do that? Well, it takes a tremendous amount of intentionality, selflessness, sacrifice, you know, kind of sacrifice, I guess. And it's certainly stepping out of a narcissistic kind of mindset and more into, you know, really exercising your emotional um, quotient muscle harder than you ever have before. It sounds easy on paper to add value to somebody else's life, but how do you do that? And that goes for a business, an individual, and whatever, in every aspect of your life, whether it's a you know a conversation with your spouse, or creating a startup that you know puts a dent in the universe. Whatever it is, at the core of it, it's all about how do I add value with really not expecting anything in return. And if you can do that, then I feel the universe will kind of work in your favor. And, and uh, your wants yeah. and need, your wants and needs will get exponentially met if you can constantly be in that kind of state. Because this- yeah, I think that's very I think that's very true. One thing that I've learned over time is that I've always been one of the people who, for some reason, believed in the reaching you know reaching a hand back to help the next guy or gal, right. um, especially when it came to the Marine Corps. But in general, um, what I found is that. One of the ways that, that that I was really able to um, work on that adding value piece was to move away from the Marine Corps model, which is really like the total Marine concept where as a squad leader at 21, yeah, I think it was 21, you know, I was responsible for close to a dozen Marines and you're just sort of, you're everything, right? You're their babysitter, you're their accountant, you're their mom, you're their right. dad. You're, you just, I mean, they're only two or three years younger than you, but you're responsible for every aspect of their physical, mental, and moral development. And that's exhausting. Right. And you need this culture that supports you as you do that. When you're on the outside, um, what I found is by restricting what it means to add value to someone else's life down to something very specific, like something I know that they're going to be dealing with. I can get really good at that. The example that I I use most often is um, when people are going to uh, college. And so when, when you're becoming a student veteran and you're thinking about, you know, where do you want to go? And there's a lot of misinformation out there. And so I've gotten really good at having the conversations early on with people who are going to states there's 34 states that have community colleges and saying, look, you, you, you don't want to compete only at the academic level where you're at right now. So don't just assume that the best school you can get into right now is the school from which you should graduate. So instead, have a two-step process where you go to community college and then you really work on it, build the skills, build the background, the academic performance that shows that you can perform at a higher level. And in in the community college, it's kind of baked in that you will transfer. And so now you have a chance to really push your trajectory up because you can transfer. You have the you have the performance um, to prove that you can that you can really uh, adapt to a a much more selective institution. And that's, you know, and from there, the networking and credentialing and opens up lots of opportunities. And I think that was that was a key insight for me. It was I, I don't know if I would call that leadership, but. What I did find that was really useful about that was I'm looking at a specific group of people at a specific decision point where it I get really good at helping somebody think through and talk through what it is that they're trying to do at that moment. Well, yeah, that's absolutely leadership because I think there's, there's a subtle difference but very powerful difference between what you're talking about. I think a lot of times when we, we talk about leadership, what I call in the JV sense, 
it's the exhausting piece. We think, well, yeah, I'm doing, I'm taking care of the folks and you're really not, you know, it's a whole kind of cliche, teach a man to fish, whatever, or, or bring him fish, whatever the case may be. But I mean, it's the idea of, I think leadership is about getting people to follow me and respect me and gain all these followers. And people come to problems, you know, William comes to me with his problems and I solve it for him. I feel pretty good in the short term. It strokes my ego and I feel like a great leader. William goes and tells how great of a person I am taking care of you, but yeah, it's, it's not sustainable, right? It can't last because at some point I'm going to get burned out because at some point I'm going to get tired of William coming to me with all of his problems, right? Yes. And at some point, yeah. if I'm going to step it up to what we're, the, the, what we're talking about is exactly what the example you just gave. It's less about, and, and, and let me even go back to the JV leadership. It's like, well, it's a mindset of like, God, if only people could think like me, if only William could think like me, then he would be successful, right? Yes. And the flips, again, it's not sustainable. It can't. It'll eventually lead to frustration. <clears throat> but what you're talking about is like, well, I get to know William and William, what does William really need? And that takes a tremendous amount, like you said, emotional intelligence. <laughs> emotion. And it goes to the point of where, okay, I know what William needs. I don't even know this is in my wheelhouse or maybe what it is, but I can see what he needs. And, um, I don't know if I'm articulating it very well, but it's different. It takes, it takes the kind of pressure off of me trying to, um, influence you to, to Richard Ryerson's way of thinking. Instead, I'm really getting in the weeds and figuring out what you need and then making that world happen for you in a way that you're, you're, are on your own. You don't need to keep coming back to me. Does that make sense? I don't know. I feel like I struggled kind of explaining that, but it's a, it's a subtle, but very powerful difference in how you view, um, adding value. Right. If I, keep, yeah. if I keep bringing the sleeping bag, cause you keep forgetting it going out to the field, you know, and I bring in, I buy an extra one in the short term, everybody's happy. Right. And oh, look how cognizant Richard was to, you know, anticipate William was going to forget a sleeping bag. But that, again, that's just not sustainable leadership. And that's where I think where a lot of people stop. Yeah. Okay. So you're saying that they stop. Um, that they think that's they don't. It. They don't ask questions about why right. the guy needed the sleeping yeah, bag. Right. They just assume that they they pat themselves on the back for getting it ahead of time. Right. Okay. Instead, really? of, instead of really getting to know you and figuring out, well, how can I, well, you know, what is it? That's what you said. You noticed, well, I noticed this, there's this need and, and they need to go to community call, you know. I mean, what a, that's a great insight that only, not maybe only, but at that moment, in that moment of time, you saw that and you decided to share that with the world or at least them, this little group of this tribe, right? And that's adding tremendous value to me. That's yeah. Hopefully I think, well, the, the, yeah, I think, I think there's, there's something really interesting to that. And, and, um, one of the things that I've, I also tried to do over time with, with different groups and as always, I did this with the GE program. Um, so this is a eight week program. And over time, what I, what I did is we, we moved to larger and larger group discussions. We used to do a lot of one-on-one -on -one time with people. Um, uh, but we started doing these, these larger group discussions once they all got to know each other and they really went through some, some trials and tribulations that we put them through. So they had built that esprit de corps, you know, that camaraderie. And we started removing ourselves from the conversations a lot in weeks seven and eight so that we would let them naturally start to take over the discussion. Because right. one of the things that I noticed from a lot of different training programs and incubators that I've been involved with is there's a, there's a huge problem of the like the wake up after the program, right? You kind of have that hangover, 
it, whether it's you just got an MBA or you just did an executive education program or whatever, but you were, you, you were in this artificial environment where everything was so wonderful, you know, you're paying to be there and they catered to you. And then you wake up the day after the program and it's, it, there's sort of this back to reality feel. And so one of the things I was doing a lot was looking at, well, how can you, how can you remove that feeling, that sort of cold, you know, ball in your gut feeling of like, crap, like, I mean, I, I don't know what the heck I'm going to do differently based on this, or I don't really know what I'm going to do next and create some of those off ramps by letting people build up that connective tissue among each other, you know, because it well, just on this idea that at the end of the day, if they're not relying on each other to figure out what it is that they need to do and, you know, bouncing ideas off and stuff, they can't kind of think out loud as a group, then they're really, they're really not going to get that much out of it. Well, yeah, yeah, but I think sometimes people have to take, I don't know. I mean, I guess that's where I struggle with being the idealist. And at some point, maybe it's not for everybody. And at some point you just got to take some sort of action and see what sticks. I mean, I I don't know. I think everybody's looking for the the blueprint or the the checklist, if you will, to make it through. I I don't think it exists. I think the only thing that that you can 100% – will guarantee it some success at some point. And, and when I say that, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be, you know, rich or the next, you know, Tim Ferriss or whatever, but is that t- the tenacity piece? It's the only thing that you, it's the only thing that I think that separates you from, I guess everybody that's in that level, that's reached that level has, has been what I call in the mud and they've come out of it multiple, yeah. multiple times. Oh yeah, I mean probably probably hundreds if not thousands of times, yeah. Although I do I I do I always I push back on the lone entrepreneur thing though. I, I, I really I do. do. I think I, it's I it's got to be 100% you know there, there really has to be this thing that you if you if you look at the process, I mean and then you and I are both in this right now. Um if you look at the process of starting a business and just how hard it is, how many struggles there's, how much friction there is between where you are and then realizing some of the objective metrics by which you would judge a company successful. And if you just, if you set up this idea that you, that you will always be motivated and you will always get up each time you're knocked down, then I think that creates a really problematic dichotomy the first time that you don't want to get back up. I agree with you. Yeah. Right. And yeah. you, ha- I have to be able to go to my wife or, you know, my one of some of my best friends and just say, dude, I just I don't want to do this anymore. And and I have to be able to know that the first thing they're going to say is, dust yourself off, fix your teeth, you know, <laughs> go yeah. get some dentures, and then <laughs> get back up and get in the ring. And I think that's. Uh, at the end of the day, if I don't have that horizontal outreach, I really don't see myself going anywhere. Because I, I do think that to some degree, my level of determination, it's at least correlated with, if it's not causal, but it's correlated with the number of people that I feel like I can reach out to on any given day if I'm really struggling. And once the rewards start to trickle in, then my determination, you know, it's it's easier and easier once you see the the engine starting to turn over. But in the early stages when you're, you know, you're trying to 
figure out how many valves per cylinder and who, how much you're going to pay for the, you know, for the machining and all that stuff. Like then it's in all those stages, you really have to have other people around. I agree. I'm glad you said that too, because I think that there's a, that prevailing myth that it is. Yeah. I, that loan entrepreneur story drives me crazy. And if you talk to, there's not, I don't even, there's no one really pushing that. Is there? I mean, so the people that we would kind of look out there, I think they would both, they would agree with the bad tech, bad tech journalists. Yeah. I think it's much easier to write conveniently about what's happening from the perspective of we of one person, per, like just personifying a company, you know. Right. It, it's late. It's it, it's jur- journalistic laziness, and then also just our own natural tendencies to think in terms of like a company is a big amorphous legal entity, but a person who's the CEO or the founder. I can wrap my head around that person and then attribute the company, all of the qualities of that person. Right. Right. Which is, which is why I like, I don't know if you, if you've checked it out, but Walter Isaacson's book, the innovators, the one he, he actually started before the biography of Steve jobs, but he completed after that. I'm about halfway through it. Just a, does a phenomenal job of describing all of the guys that, that created the, modern like information age technologies and how involved they all were with each other, how Mm -hmm. well they knew each other and how many people were working behind the scenes to support what they did. And all the, it's a fascinating story about it. It definitely does not skirt the issue of how important some of the individuals were, how unique they were in terms of their contributions. Um, But there is no, there's no attempt to make it seem like one person did everything. Yeah. The larger than life charismatic personality swooping in like the Lone Ranger to either solve a problem and go on. I mean, that is such a myth. It's never really been that way. And, um, and it never sustained it. And, you know, all the companies that are sustainable, you know, the legacy is built because of, yeah, the, the, maybe the larger than life person helped maybe set the outcomes or the vision of the strategy or whatever, or the dream. Um, but man, you couldn't do it by yourself. And they, they readily acknowledge that. I mean, a lot of the ones that I've kind of respected and admire, they would say that I couldn't do this without X, Y, Z and this person and that person. And, you know, and that person even kind of the, they're always willing to, to share the shoulders that they've stood on prior to them. Like they, I don't know. Those, those are the, the people that I admire, the ones that are at least pay homage to the shoulders that they're standing on. And they know. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And I think almost everybody does that, you know, and if you, again, if you go back to reading, uh, even the recent stuff, um, like I have just my company has been in the, the news a lot recently, and I've just watched how the just because there's been a big push, the new Secretary of Defense is very involved in technology and stuff, so we, we've made it a lot into the news. Um, but just even watching what they choose to pull out of interviews and place into articles, you know, it's like okay, it's it's all very formulaic yeah. and it's all designed to support that laziness, yeah. that laziness. Yeah. That, that lazy way of writing about something. Um, and I, I just, I mean, I, I, I love to write too. So I don't, I don't mean to say that I don't, and I do the same thing. That's why I recognize it. It's just a much harder to construct an accurate story. That's still compelling. than it is to construct the lazy story that's more lone rangerish that um that people are more likely to like and share and yeah, whatever right. yeah were there, were there any what the speaking of in the mud moments i mean what are some of those those dark spaces that you've been in that you thought well maybe i just can't, can't go on any further or i'm um, like you said i'm going to give up um what moments were there for you 
Um, wow. Well, I mean, there've been a lot. I mean, the first, the first startup I joined, I was going to go to McKinsey, um, after I graduated again, optionality chaser. Um, I had the commitment has always been a hard thing for me. Um, so I was about to join and then, um, a buddy of mine, another Marine actually, um, who just joined as the COO of a startup out in Arizona and called me up and asked me to join. And I got the chairman flew out and convinced me to, to, to do it. And, uh, the company folded like seven months later, it was, you know, mistake on my part, but I got to work with a great group of guys. But at that point, um, I had some other, another opportunity in what became uh, BMNT partners to, to, um, to again, work with a great group of people on an interesting challenge. And, um, there were a lot of times during, even up to now, you know, where uh, there are a lot of questions that I keep, I keep, I think, looking for, or not even looking, I keep searching for a feeling. I keep looking, I keep looking like internally to see where is this moment where I'm going to feel like uh, everything is going the way that I think it should be going. And I'm such a perfectionist that I don't think it's ever going to be there. So that's a very long-winded way of saying every day. Yeah. Every day, every day I think that. Every day I wish that my company was more successful. I wish I was closing more I wish I was closing more deals. I wish that we had more media coverage. I wish that we did a better job on the last workshop. I mean, I was out in Quantico uh, leading an innovation um, workshop for a bunch of uh, marine captains actually. Um, it's like senior captains in their B billets and Man, it was like everybody that came up to me afterwards was saying we had a really like a two hour discussion after the thing was even over. And the, the point of contact for the group was happy and everybody was happy. And I was just, you know, I talked to my wife that night. It was just like, I don't know. I just, it could have gone so much better. Yeah, I just, I I know. you know, it yeah. just, and that's just the way that, that's just the way I've always been. Well, you know, I had a great conversation with Jill Rotenberg on this show. It's one of my favorites that I've had. And she wrote a book called The Crazy is a Compliment. And she started a, uh, oh gosh, her, the, her oh, Endeavor is the name of her organization. And she started a, uh, it's basically a, a place where, on you know, where you, it's, a schoolhouse for entrepreneurs and kind of spreading the entrepreneurship around the world, the whole idea of it. And, um, they have seed money and fundings and they get people to involved, you know, to be a part of it. And it's just entrepreneurs helping entrepreneurs is really the kind of the goal of it. And she, she wrote a book called crazy is the compliment. And we I love it. And it's an awesome book. If there's anybody, it's a great entrepreneurship primer for anybody who's thinking about or in, uh, starting their own business, no matter what level you're at. And, um, Anyway, we talked about that kind of feeling, and she said that um, she's like, when, at what point is it going to feel like I'm, you know, yeah, I've arrived or whatever? And she's kind of come to the conclusion, and I agree with her. It's like you just you never feel that way, and that's the part you got to get comfortable with, because that's not that feeling of like, yeah, everything's clicking on all, all cylinders or I've arrived or you've planted a flag is actually kind of a dangerous place to be because if you do do that, the next thing that you can probably expect is a fall. And so how, yeah. do, how do you get comfortable with that kind of feeling of uneasiness that that is the new normal if you're going to, if you're going to be in this space? Uh, get, get married, man. You, know, you get right. married and you have, you have kids and you have yeah. great friends. And that, right. I, I think like the, the, the answer to that is the answer to that is spiritual and social. Exactly. Um, right. right. I mean, the part of it is like mm -hmm. in terms of the day-to-day -day tactics. I think meditation and prayer are huge. Yep. 
um, you know, spending some time on your own. And, you know, there's, there's just, if you go to scholar.google.com and you just type in meditation, you know, health benefits or something, you'll get a million articles. I have a good friend of mine who's actually married to a Marine officer, runs Stanford's Center for Compassion and Altruism Research. Mm-hmm. And um, she, uh, she did a lot of, she cut her teeth at the uh, Wisconsin VA doing a lot of studies about mindfulness and post-traumatic stress and traumatic brain injury and stuff. And she's uh, done some great work, and I've done some of the sessions even. And I even actually I did a ten day silent meditation retreat up in uh, uh, North County, um, Vipassana meditation retreat, and like that was huge for me. About a year and a half after I got back from Afghanistan, stuff like that is great. I you know, agree with it, you. I think you hit it right on the head that you've got to because that. <laughs> When you're chasing that kind of feeling, like you said, that feeling of serenity and peace, you cannot get that from a business or even an income level, right? It has to come. The spirituality piece has to be a part of it. The in, the kind of introspection, the the whatever, the me time, I guess, in the morning. In fact, Jill and I talked about that too. That once she started incorporating that in the morning and every day, it's kind of, it's like slaying the dragon. It's like what Stephen Pressfield talks about in the War of Art, right? It's like you're always dealing with that resistance. Um, once you get comfortable that the, the reality, a professional understands that every day you gotta you gotta get up and slay the dragon, and the dragon mm-hmm. the dragon's always gonna be there in the morning. You no matter how successful your day was, and you can certainly as the sun's setting and you get your arm around your wife and you're watching the kid play in the in the grass and thinking, man, life is good. That's all great, and that is a blessing, and that's there for that to, to for that moment. Or when people come up to you at the end of your speech and say, William, that was great. I mean, that's a gift, and then you just gotta let it go, right? Because if you hang on to that and you're thinking that's the feeling that I'm always should be striving for, that feeling of success is. Um, you know, I got to have that always. I mean, that's what leads to people doing all kinds of crazy weird stuff, you know? Yeah. 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 No, there's, uh, (laughs) I don't know if you've heard the, there's a, uh, an old Chinese story about the, then there's an old man who lives in a village. He's got a, got a son and, um, they had a, there was a, big bumper crop that year and, and everybody was so happy and they went, you know, in his, in his fields and they said, you know, oh, you must be so happy. It's amazing. You know, um, that you were able to, uh, to get all these crops. And he's like, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll see. And then, um, he uses a bunch of the proceeds to buy a horse for his son. And, uh, his horse his, his son takes the horse out riding falls and, and breaks his leg and everybody right, comes to him yeah. and says, Oh man, I'm so sorry that your son broke his leg. That's so terrible. And he's like, yeah, yeah, you know, we'll see. And then a couple of days later, the um, the uh, government prefect issued drafts a bunch of the young men, basically, and his son is excluded from the draft because he has a broken leg. And uh, you know, then everybody comes to him and says, "Oh, you know, that sucks." I mean, you know, or that's so great that that's happened. And he's like, "Yeah, you know, we'll we'll see." And um, it just kind of it, it goes to that it goes to that idea that um, there's you never really know what's going to happen. And, and if you try to hold on to one particular moment that you have some huge issues. Yeah. It's like, ha- it's the, it's the dichotomy of how do you, you know, walk around with life knowing that, you know, Damocles sword is, is above your head and it's going to drop at some point and you just don't know when and, and getting comfortable with the fact knowing that it is going to drop at some point and it's going to knock you on your butt doesn't mean that the pain, I think that it's just, it's just the kind of the, uh, because some people will say, well, you, you can't, you just enjoy your success. You know, 
that's where the workaholic syndrome comes in. Is like, well, why can't you just be satisfied? Um, I think it's a fine line, right? It's just, it's just getting comfortable with the fact that there's always going to be a fire. If that makes sense. Yeah. And instead of yeah. trying to spend your time and your resources trying to put the fire out, which is just going to lead to frustration, just get used to the fact that there's a fire around you, and exploit that fire to your advantage instead of trying to eliminate it. I guess. I guess that's how. That's where I'm at. In, right now yeah i think yeah i think i think that's a pretty i think that's a pretty good way of, of thinking about it, it it's, it's always difficult with those analogies right and, and that's why this i think the story is sort of you can you can take what you what you can from it it's really it's it's so hard to balance that desire to i mean to to want to harness some of that energy some of that fire for productive uses to really like you I mean to make the world a better place to create value in other people's lives but then at the same time, to realize that that means that there is, at the core of your life here, there will be a restlessness. Yeah, yeah. And an inability, right, to just be. And if there is one thing that I hear, especially from, you know, those closest to me, it's that I just can't be. And that is, there are some people that can be. And there were times in my life where I could be, but I don't associate those times with good times, yeah. It's, yeah. So it's it's more like, do you want to be a do you want to be a person that can be because you have no ambition, you have no drive, you don't want to change the world, or do you want to eventually, you know, you kind of go through this rough transition where you are trying to do things, and it might be decades. It has been for me, where you're really trying to struggle with with this desire for ambition and betterment and all these different kinds of things that you want to be able to do in your life, success, however you think of that. But over time, you build. The system for capturing that in a better, in better and better ways. It's like, I mean, it's almost like saying you, you know, you figure out what to put over the fire that you want heated up. Yeah. You know, right. you, you figure out how to use the lights, and you you don't get burned as much, and, and just sort of things just get better and better in terms of the way that you that you use it. And very naturally, I think, as you get older, you know, once you start hitting sixties and seventies, the the fire stops burning as bright just naturally. And then all of these tools that you've developed now stand you in even better stead, ideally. Yeah. I think for me, it's, it's time and economic freedom is what I think the vast majority of us are, are striving for. Maybe we don't consciously even say that, but I think that's what's driving a lot of ambition out there. And that can be tied with, you know, putting a dent in the universe. And um, I think it's all that searching. We're constantly, everybody's searching for significance. I mean, that's why it's so... And, and I, it's got to be all. It's got to the search for significance and the strive for economic and time freedom has to have the um, the drive and the spirit to create something. I think, and, and that's where I think a lot of people miss it too. They, it, it, to me, you got to have a creative a creative element to it, a spirituality element to it, and a competitive element to it. And it's that all of that kind of meshing together is. I would hope drive success. I mean, cause that's, that's, those are, those are the three areas that I'm constantly battling with the competitive side, the creative side and the spiritual side mm. and, and trying to get all of those to sing together. No, I really like the way that you put that. I, I hadn't thought about that that way before, but it makes a lot of sense. The, um, and when I put too much emphasis on the competitive side, it just gets out of whack. It's just, to I start doing stupid shit. Like, you know, Oh, I got to, you know, create a webinar thing that will drive traffic. And I just hate being in that space, to be quite honest. And maybe that means I'll never be 
you know, like I said, a Tim Ferriss where I'm working four hours a week, but I, I just can't do that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I don't think you should want to, I mean, right. I don't, I don't think he's a very happy guy. I don't think a lot of people that live that way are very happy. You can't live on the surface like that. Um, and really enjoy yourself. I mean, but he, he talks very openly. I mean, we don't, we don't, this isn't a podcast about Tim Ferriss, but I mean, he talks openly about that kind of stuff and his struggle to kind of begin to feel, um, like he is grounded every day and he does meditate and that kind of stuff. And so I think even he is very, you know, aware of this kind of stuff and, and tries to figure out how to, how to mitigate a lot of the worst parts of this restlessness. And, and I mean, the, the, all the cliche stuff I think always applies, right? I mean, cause you, you, okay. So to kind of pick a little bit of that competitive piece you just mentioned, the more engaged you are in sort of all the different media that are available to us, the more your competitive energies will be misplaced. And, um, that's really problematic. Like you, 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 it's hard to just, you know, scroll through a Facebook feed or something and not feel a little bit of envy sure, or absolutely. jealousy or something. Right? right. And then what does that make you want to go do? You have to go keep up with the Joneses now. Yep. And that's a completely misplaced use of your energy and your attention. And it's just that kind of stuff is corrosive to your yeah. soul. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, it's just, it's just not the way to, to go about life. And I think that's, that also is, really helpful. I mean, when you go back to the people who, you know, I really love reading these aren't, this is just, this has started for me recently, but man, I mean, Warren Buffett and, and, uh, Charles Munger, you know, their, their, uh, letter to the shareholders of Berkshire Hathaway each year, it was so good this year, which is their 50th anniversary. So they wrote a little retrospective. I went out to Amazon and somebody's put together an ebook for all of the 50 years. And if they're, you know, these guys are kind of famous for some of their, like, values investing and the way that they structure Berkshire, Berkshire Hathaway. But, you know, people always talk about how Buffett is stayed in Omaha. You know, he didn't go to New York. He didn't, you know, go to any other places he could have that were sort of understood as centers of power. And I think it was specifically done to avoid any of these placing yourself in environments where you're going to get distracted by things that don't matter. And that is that's a great definition of what social media is media yeah. in general, really. Yeah. It's just in an environment where you're getting distracted by things that don't matter and it's going to make you feel worse. And it just, there's just so many reasons to just be out in the world building what you want to try to build. And if you don't know what you want to build, then you go and work for somebody else who does know what they want to build right. until you figure it out. And it just, it sounds so complicated um, once you start to execute it, but it's really a, a pretty good philosophy. Yeah, it is. I like I that. Think. Man, I could talk to you forever, man. We've already been going on for over an hour, which is a first really? for a dose of leadership. So, uh... <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't mean to, don't mean to take up too much time, no, but I really no, love, like, and hey, I love, love chatting with you. Hey, it's, it's my it's... show, man. I can do whatever I want. So there you go. Yeah, <laughs> that's I'm, all. I'm excited to put it out there and see what, what, the reaction people will think. I think it's, uh, um, like I said, I think it's just, you're just so fun to talk to. Kind of as we wrap up, I'm kind of curious. I always ask everybody what who their heroes are. And the first time we talked in there, I didn't ask you this. We ran out of time. <laughs> but what, yeah. If you could have the ultimate dinner party where you could have, you know, kick butt night of conversation, which would be really easy with you, who would those five people be, alive or dead? And, and why would you pick them? Huh. That's man. That's an interesting conversation. Well, uh, or interesting question. Probably, um, so 
it, I, I'm tempted to say some cliched stuff like Jesus and stuff, but I mean, from, you know, what I can tell, I, I think I would, I kind of already know Jesus's message, so I don't think I would get, <laughs> I don't think I would get much out of a dinner conversation, but people who I think have really struggled with life would be the most interesting ones for me. I would say, so in the biblical era, I would say Pontius Pilate would be an oh, interesting man. person to have. That's interesting. Um, especially if he knew what he, what we all know now. Yeah. Uh, so that's that'd be a very interesting person. Um, Marcus Aurelius certainly. I mean, the, oh, the man who choice. expanded Rome more than anyone yeah. else, who never even saw it. Um, and obviously, the Stoic philosophy is is a very interesting one, very much in line with a lot of the stuff that you were discussing yeah. earlier. People have said that that yeah, a lot of what I talk about is Stoicism, but yeah, but that would that'd be a good choice. Yeah. Yeah, he'd, he'd be a really good one. Um, I think. Well, if it's a dinner party, I mean, obviously, I, I have to have my my wife there sure, because. Sure. He's amazing. Um, oh, man. You know, in terms of just people that really, you know, I've just heard that I just heard that she's from a few people. That she's that she's great. So probably probably Oprah. I've just heard she's really good at coaxing amazing yeah. conversations yeah. and revelations out of people. So then maybe I just top it off with General Mattis. Oh, my God. Right. I have to right. go to this party. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that'd be I think that'd be really cool. I think that there's you know cool there's not enough. One of the things that I found really true about being at, at Stanford was, I mean, we're, these veterans are kind of like unicorns, you know, and you're so rare, so you get invited to a lot of cool stuff. And I got the chance to listen to a lot of cabinet officials and former cabinet officials discuss national security and foreign policy and domestic stuff, and um, most of them just kind of say what they always say. I got used to listening to a lot of people and they just kind of always made the same points. So that's one thing that struck me about General Mattis is that he, um, he's, he's able to integrate really, really interesting and divergent points of view to synthesize. Yeah. He's not a, he's not a broken record. And so I think in terms of like catalyzing some really interesting stuff and then you could kind of have mattis talking to pontius Pilate, you know because he was i mean he was also responsible for the security of rome that would be kind of an interesting mm -hmm. conversation or excuse me the security of judea it'd be kind of an interesting conversation between the two of them too so yeah, that would anyway be a good one. That's, a, that's a that's one of the most unique ones that i've had that's a those are oh. good well oh, thank you and oprah yeah i gotta admit i watch i've I admitted this in the show a couple of times i i've I think she's fantastic just from the, you know, I watch a lot just from not, you know, the cliche business piece of it, but the the way, like you said, the, the way that she can extract mm -hmm. information is fascinating. Yeah. She, she drills, she drills for insights about people, like, like really core things about people, the way that you can, you drill for oil, you know, you take, yeah. he, she takes like core samples out of people's souls and just like shows them to everybody. Yeah. It's really amazing, and she extracts them in a way that everybody relates to. I think it's pretty, pretty impressive. Well, man, fantastic conversation. We could probably Richard, go another yeah. two hours, but uh, we'll have you come back. But man, this is going to be, uh, like I said, the first hour and ten minutes conversation. We'll see what the what the response is. Hopefully, people will get some great value. I think they will. Um, I hope so. Um, yeah. It, it was it was a real it was a pleasure and an honor, and uh, I really appreciate it. All right, man. Hang on the line here we'll talk for a little bit more but uh thanks for coming on the show yeah you're welcome thank oh, you before we do how do, can people get in touch with you oh yeah um they can uh just e email was the easiest way um my uh william dot traceder t-r-e-s-e-d-e-r at gmail.com is easy and uh if you go to uh just google bmnt partners 
and you'll uh, you'll find out a little bit more information about the firm if anybody's interested. Definitely. I'll have links to all this on the post that you can easily get in touch with William. Again, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Richard. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.